Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Get that shot, make it hot. What does this mean, the hot vax summer? Well, we're going to have a hot vax summer because we're a hot vax family. After a year of virtual lockdown, America is ready to break loose and lose the mask this summer. Vax summer. We're at a weird point in the pandemic. Cases are down in the U.S., vaccinations are up, and people are stoked. Someone literally wrote this song called Hot Vax Summer. I recently saw my best friends in Chicago. Had that classic moment of feeling like things are kind of normal again. Carmen Pon, our global health reporter at Politico, is about to have hers. I'm actually planning to to go back home in Romania at the end of this month to see my family that I haven't seen in two years. So I think that will be my my big moment for it. And I mean, this is all great. But all of this excitement, it can make you forget about the global state of the pandemic. The pandemic is a long way far from over. And it will not be over anywhere until it's over everywhere. Many are warning that, you know, what we saw in 2020 was a walk in the park. There is a huge disconnect growing where in some countries with the highest vaccination rates, uh, there, are, there appears to be a mindset that the pandemic is over, while others are experiencing huge waves of infection. Already so far, we're on track to overtake globally the number of infection and deaths that we had all over 2020. So if there's no you know, real fast solution, I think things are only bound to, to get much, much worse. The G7 countries are the world's economic and political leaders. They're also home to many of the world's vaccine producers. We will only solve the vaccine crisis with the leadership of these countries. I'm Jeremy Siegel. This is Politico Dispatch. And today, as President Biden and other world leaders prepare to gather for the Gang of Seven Summit this week, Carmen Pond on growing calls for the G7 to turn hot vax summer into hot vax donation summer. So real quick before we get into the G7 meeting, what would you say is the state of covid across the world? The state is overall pretty bad. Uh, We are seeing surges in many places in the world, Latin America, Asia, Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of this are also places that have very limited access to vaccines. Um, In Africa, I think less than 2% of the people have received one dose of vaccine. And there's just not enough supply coming in right now um, to be able to say that, you know, they will have a vaccine within the next few weeks or even the next month. Um, Then there's the Delta variant that was first identified in India that has spread to some 60 countries now. Um, For the countries that have high level of vaccination, um, it's probably not such a big concern because it seems the vaccines still work against it. So it should still prevent people from, you know, getting um, seriously sick or or dying. Mm -hmm. But in many countries that don't have that level, that have one or two percent of their people, you know, vaccinated, that's still a very big risk. Um, So, uh, you know, while well, in the U.S., it may look like things are going back to normal. Most of the world is actually probably at its worst stage in the pandemic so far. 
With that backdrop, the group of seven, the leaders of the U.S., the U.K., Japan, Canada, France, Germany, and Italy, they're all meeting this weekend in the U.K. How much of a role do you think COVID is going to play during these talks? I think there are expectations that will be, you know, front and center. Um, if you look at the agenda, I feel that, you know, the, the urgency um, is still not there, or at least not apparent in the agenda. They do have a lot of more things to talk about. But we've heard the Prime Minister, uh, the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying that he wants to get the rest of his fellow G7 leaders to commit to vaccinated, you know, majority of the world by the end of 2022. Um, so there is a lot of expectation and hope that, you know, these rich countries, most of them that have vaccine supply, most of them that control them because many of the producers, um, you know, are in those countries, would actually finally get their act together and, and really help the world um, respond to the pandemic. Because even with the Delta variant, we're already seeing it threatening the reopening in the UK. Um, so while that might not necessarily lead to death and, you know, and hospitalization, it doesn't mean that if countries are vaccinated and they have enough vaccines for their kids, they're going to be okay. You know, what, what happens in the rest of the world, of course, affects everybody, including the, the rich countries that are meeting at the G7. So you mentioned that Johnson is calling for the G7 to commit to vaccinating the world by the end of next year. We learned yesterday that the Biden administration is planning on buying 500 million Pfizer doses to give to other nations later this year and also next year. He's expected to officially announce that today. But you're reporting that timing is critical here, given rising cases in countries with low vaccination rates and that there are growing calls for the G7 to try to take some immediate action, not necessarily next year. Do you think we could see, I don't know, some sort of pledge or broad announcement come out of the G summit involving coronavirus vaccinations and quick aid? I certainly hope so, um, because, you know, these countries, most of them have sort of like a good vaccination level at home now, and they can spend some time looking at the rest of the world and finding ways to to help. I mean, the main thing that, that, you know, officials involved in the international response and global health officials are asking for is really, you know, on the sh very short term um, to donate vaccine doses. And there are calls for anywhere between one or two billion vaccine doses that should be donated between the seven countries in the group by the end of this year. Um, and at least 150 million of them should be you know, donated immediately, like by August, because as I was saying, many countries in, you know, in Africa and in Asia and Latin America, they don't have vaccines. There's no supply coming in because one of the major vaccine producers, the Serum Institute of India, which is in India, cannot export because it, ne it needs all the doses it can get for the people back in India. Mm -hmm. So I think if we see any of this commitment and timing, you know, just as many were saying, pledges that they're going to, you know, they're going to be doses donated over the next two years are not enough. Really, we need to see doses now heading from, you know, the U.S., the U.K. into into countries um, in the rest of the world. So you know, we can stop the spread of the virus and this like, you know, ever emerging new variants that many fear that eventually vaccines will not work against anymore. So let me ask about the vaccine supply there is now, because I do find it all a little confusing. We, the U.S., are currently sitting on unused vaccines right now, including ones that could expire, right? 
Absolutely, yes. So there, there are reports. Um, our our colleagues from the from the health team are reporting about Johnson and Johnson doses now being used um, in several states that are expiring at the end of this month. Uh, we are waiting on those sixty million doses of AstraZeneca that are produced in the U.S. Uh, we're waiting on the FDA to clear them to see if you know if they're safe and not contaminated in the production process to to go abroad. But indeed, again, we're going back to the same issue we we're talking about. Timing is crucial. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Because also in some countries, you cannot just send a vaccine that expires in three, four days. You have to make sure that they are ready to deploy it as soon as it arrives at the airport. And that's still problematic in many countries that just don't have the capacity, don't have you know necessarily the infrastructure, the roads, or, or to fly vaccines, especially vaccines like Pfizer and Moderna that require this very, very, very cold storage. So it is complicated at times, you know, countries don't only need vaccines, but they also need support to actually get them in arms. Mm. We've seen here in the U.S. that, you know, that was, you know, hard at the beginning and, and it's happening all over the world. It's such a massive vaccination campaign that you cannot expect that, you know, once the vaccine is in an airport, it's going to, you know, magically um, end in, in the arms of people in that country. Like there's so much more that needs to be done. I mean, that's why it's so complicated. But it's it's possible if if you know if the rich countries get together and 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 are serious about it, it's it's definitely possible to do. Carmen Pon, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. Also today. A new study finds that the top 1% of earners in the U.S. would bear nearly all the brunt of President Biden's proposed tax hikes. According to a report released by the Tax Policy Center on Wednesday, the top 0.1% of earners, making at least $3.6 million, would face a nearly $1.6 million increase under Biden's plans. And those in the top 1% with incomes of at least $817,000 would pay an additional $213,000. Middle-income earners would see modest tax cuts, averaging about $340, and those in the bottom fifth would get $620. The analysis did find that some people earning less than $400,000 would pay more, despite the administration's promise to shield them from increases. And the Biden administration is planning to impose new sanctions on Belarus. Speaking to a Senate committee on Wednesday, U.S. Ambassador-designate Julie Fisher said the White House is working on an executive order that will, quote, raise the costs of the violence and repression that the regime is inflicting. The move comes amid rising tensions between Minsk and the West over Belarusian leader Alexander Lukashenko's brutal crackdown on pro-democracy activists and a free press, including forcing a commercial airliner to land in Belarus's capital last month to arrest a key opposition journalist. Today's episode included music composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to subscribe to Politico Dispatch if you haven't yet, and also check out some of our other shows like Playbook Deep Dive and Politico Energy. I'm Jeremy Siegel. Thanks for listening.